Fundraising everywhere. 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 Welcome to the Fundraising Everywhere podcast, where we give you a glimpse into one of our amazing webinars or conferences. You can check out one of our full sessions and get a 50% discount by using the code FEPODCAST at fundraisingeverywhere.com. Yep, just head to the Fundraising Everywhere website and use the code FEPODCAST at the checkout to get 50% off any of our sessions. Well, thanks everybody for being here. I'm so excited to talk with you about data and how, unfortunately, many times we as nonprofit organizations use data a little incorrectly and it undermines our ultimate desire to have good strategy. So today I'm going to talk with you about the uh, first, the foes of good strategy, which is data's deadly sins. And then I'm gonna talk about the foundations of good strategy and then conclude with some features of good strategy. So as we go through this journey, I am hopeful that we will be able to talk through some of the pitfalls that other organizations have had, as well as drive you into the best decisions that you can make when it comes to acquiring the data and utilizing the data for your purposes. So let's jump in and talk about the foes of good strategy, data's deadly sins. And of course, we'll we'll talk about the seven deadly sins uh, that you're familiar with. So the first one that I see most often with nonprofits is the deadly sin of data lust. Lust uh, comes in the form of, I must have the data. And uh, I often think about it as the shiny object syndrome. So we have many nonprofits out there who see these cool, shiny new concepts that are happening in data or in the adjacent to the nonprofit world, or even our for-profit colleagues that have the, the cool new toy, the, the Tesla of data. And we want that for ourselves, especially when we hear the stories of how they're going zero to 60 in two seconds with their, with their shiny new data. And they, the reality is that many times that shiny new toy is being marketed to you just like a Tesla is. It looks cool, but is it, does it really make economic sense? Does it really meet your organization's needs? And so we have a proliferation right now in the nonprofit sector of entities that talk about AI, artificial intelligence, or using cryptocurrency. And many times those AI companies are not actually artificial intelligence or machine learning. They're, uh, they're, they've just slapped AI on their title. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't actually organizations, companies that are working in nonprofit that are doing AI. But do you really need artificial intelligence when you are struggling to make ends meet for your nonprofit? Does the shiny new object make sense? And so the the solution that I want to offer to you for this deadly sin of lust is that you, instead of hiding your problems as a nonprofit behind the sexy new concept that's out there, is rather to wait and assess. 
to wait and assess, to really determine whether these types of tools are useful and helpful to you as an organization. The second deadly sin is gluttony, and this comes in the form of, I must have all the data, bring all the data to me, and it ultimately results in this kind of fast food mentality of, uh, of data, where everything is cheap and everything is easy, I can drive through and collect as much data as possible. And so what we end up doing is rather than having a sensible data diet, we end up with data overconsumption where there's so much data that we've collected and that we're consuming that we actually can't use it all. And the, the lesson to be learned is that when it comes to data, more is not necessarily better. Again, companies may share with you the, the, um, the value of having multiple data points or uh, multiple resources that you can draw upon. But if you aren't actually going to be able to use that data, it's not really helpful. And so the the strategy that I would offer you is to remember to humanize the approach uh, of, of gluttony to say, what really makes sense with our capacity? If it's really just you that's working in your nonprofit or you're a small shop, then having tons and tons of data doesn't really make sense for your organization. You won't be able to use that. And so can you actually make a decision based upon the data that you are acquiring? The next deadly sin is greed. And this comes in the form of the data will make us rich. We will have all the money if we have all the data. Uh, and so if you remember that that movie, uh, Jerry Maguire, where he says, show me the money. That is what, again, marketers are trying to tell you as a nonprofit is, you know, you are missing out on the 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 real resources that are out there, if only you have these additional data points, then this will be the silver bullet to make you money and to create the funds that your organization needs. And so this comes in the form of, of wealth screening and all kinds of other pieces of, uh, of data that, that's out there. Now, again, I'm not saying that these pieces of information are not valuable. We use that data in our organization all the time. But remember that uh, that there, the idea here is that you're being sold a bill of goods that assumes often certainty that uh, if you are given these data points that you will certainly raise money when in reality there are a lot of steps that go into that process to ensure that you will be able to raise the money that they're purporting to to help you with. So remember that in statistics there's this concept of a p-value. Uh, it is not as though that that data leads to the to the result of you know one plus one equals two. That's not what statistics does. What statistics does is really give us more confidence in the course of action that we're taking. But there's always uncertainty. There's always the chance that something is changed or goes wrong or uh, takes a different path. And when it comes to human interaction, it might be helpful to know that someone's a millionaire. But if they're not interested in your organization, that doesn't really matter. You all know this, but it is important to remember that when we're talking about using data for decision making, that so often we get blinded by greed, whether it's a you know the bad form of, of greed from the movie Wall Street, or just a reasonable amount of greed where we, we want to raise more money and, and that our programs are so important that we forget that there, there are a lot more pieces to the puzzle than just knowing the information. We have to be able to act on it in a way that is appropriate.
The next deadly sin is sloth. And this comes in the form of the date is enough. We've got, we've got what we need. Uh, and so this is sort of the opposite of that gluttony approach. But our challenge here as nonprofits is that we're unwilling to collect, clean, or confirm the data that we have. So, so often in our um, request to complete our programs and do what we want to do um, effectively and efficiently so that we can go to home to our families at night, we don't necessarily focus on making sure that data is consistently collected in an appropriate form, that we confirm that with surveys and questions that, that, uh, that tell us that this is actually what our donors want or actually what our beneficiaries want, and then to be able to make sure that that data is clean, whether it's addresses or other pieces of that information so that we can make actionable decisions from that data. As you know, garbage in, garbage out. If we don't have clean, accurate, confirmed data, then our decisions are going to be skewed by that. The other slothful decision is that we often look at one metric. So for example, I see a lot of nonprofits who focus on just dollars raised. Well, if we focus just on that metric, we end up with skewed processes and skewed promises to our superiors. A really good non-nonprofit non example uh, outside of the charity sector is that a lot of people would assume that sumo wrestlers are unhealthy, that Japanese sumo wrestlers are unhealthy because they're so large, 300, 400 pound um, people that seem unhealthy. But a recent study actually indicates that because of their level of exercise, they're actually very healthy. And the amount of visceral fat that they have is rather low. So their fat is, uh, uh, you know, is appropriate to their level of activity. But if you looked just singularly at how much they weigh and how many calories they consume, you might be biased to believe that they are unhealthy. So what's important here is that you institutionalize rigor in an organization when it comes to data practices, meaning that we are going to consistently collect the correct pieces of information. We want to clean that on a regular basis and that we want to make sure that that data connects with reality, that it coheres with what we're seeing in the world and that it reflects what, what practices we, we hope to um, have as part of our strategy. The next deadly sin is wrath. And this is the concept of the data never lies. And you've probably heard of this in, in other places uh, along the lines of, you know, the numbers don't lie. Numbers always tell the truth. Well, Nancy Duarte, who's a, a data analyst and has written the book Data Story, reminds us that numbers don't tell a story. Numbers are facts that have no, uh, no inference to them. And what we're asked to do as, as leaders in the space, as analysts, is to interpret that data to help us solve a problem. That's what strategy comes down to. And many times you have people in your organization that have a consistent way of doing things and they've done things in a, in a way uh, before that they don't want to change. So there's a great book uh, also called Who Moved by Cheese? And what often happens when we institute data policies or the data collection in order to have data-driven decision-making is that we end up moving someone's cheese in a way that creates anger and resentment. And it is important for us to think through what behaviors need to be changed and what will that eventually mean for those roles, for those people, and um, to 
to rethink what do the numbers really tell us? How can we critically think about the data points that we're acquiring and what does that look like? And providing good inference when it comes to that data. Uh, so humanizing that, of course, but also developing buy-in from our counterparts so that they understand why good data is important and how we're going to apply inference to that to tell an ongoing data story. The next deadly sin is envy. And this comes in the form of my neighbor's data is really cool. And you probably saw this with a lot of other fundraising practices, whether it's the uh, the ice bucket challenge or viral videos of other kinds that we want to, we see what other nonprofits are doing and we're excited by that. We want to do that too. And many times that comes down to data. We hear case studies of people who are acquiring lots of data and using that data in meaningful ways. But most of the time when those case studies are unpacked, there are a lot of other pieces of the puzzle that are important to understand when it comes to using that for strategy. So rather than copycatting other organizations, it's important that we understand that we have biases that come into our data collection process and our data analysis. And so rather than following false leads of, you know, that other organization down the street did something cool, we need to check those biases. And there are a litany of biases that go into our minds when it comes to data and process that we need to kind of unpack. But we need to solve the, the problem of envy by focusing on our organization-specific DNA. What is it that we were created to do and how can we do that well with the appropriate pieces of data rather than looking outside or elsewhere for the for um, for data practices? Now, that doesn't mean that we don't learn from outside of our organization, but it does mean that we need to customize it to our specific use case. And the last deadly sin, the seventh, is pride. And that comes in the form of data drives decision, except, but... And in one case, you, you've probably seen this before where people get some kind of data, they look at a dashboard and it doesn't tell the story they want to tell. And so they, they start to position the data as the exception to the rule. They say, I know better than the data, or what about this other contravening piece of evidence that tells us something different? I've talked to someone that says something else. And so we start to prioritize anecdotes over facts, and we also look for data to validate preconceived opinions. Remember when I talked about those biases? Well, we might have preconceived opinions or a hypothesis that we want to confirm that relates back to the way that we do things. This is a simple psychological principle of confirmation bias. And so we want, we curate the data that helps us make the case for what we've done or what validates our position. And the problem in nonprofits, the problem is that promotions are driven by how our data is measured. So performance tends to dictate that if we raise more money and we uh, we serve more people, that we we get more accolades, we win awards, or, or we get a raise, or, or things like that. And because we measure those metrics, we try to find data that validates those metrics. So the solution, my friends, is to make sure that whatever is being used to validate our own positions, our promotions, our raises, our longevity in the organization, is separate from what we are measuring as strategy. 
because strategy could tell us something very different. And it is essential that when we're looking at what is measured, that it is it we're cautious about how that piece is managed. So for example, uh, when we're looking at strategy and, and we say, well, our metric is dollars raised or pounds raised or euros raised, we, how much money have we made? Well, the best way of doing that is to find four people that give us large gifts. But you all know, you are, are smart folks and you know that that's not a good sustainable fundraising system, that we need to have a sustainable, comprehensive fundraising approach. So having just four major gifts doesn't doesn't make sense. But that metric would tell us that's how we do it. And our fundraisers would be bonused or raise, given raises or given promotions based upon finding those four people that gave us X number of, of dollars or, or money. So remember that we measure, we manage towards what we measure, and we need to be cautious of that. So those seven deadly sins affect how we think about strategy. So let, now let's jump into the foundations of good strategy. And I want to give you some key uh, points to what the foundation of good strategy means with regard to our data practices. The first is having a strategy versus having strategic goals. If you look at most nonprofits and their strategic plan, there are a set of strategic goals. I was working with a nonprofit uh, a couple of years ago, and they had this Vision 2020. And they said, our goal by 2020 is to increase our revenue by 20% and to increase the people we serve by 20%. And I sat down with this executive director and I said, so those seem like strategic goals and they're great goals to have, but how would we get there? What? And so he pulled out the strategic plan and showed me the tactics. And I said, but why is that a strategy. What what are the things that you are using to suggest that these things, these 20% goals are appropriate, besides being just catchy and 2020? Now, obviously, 2020 threw a lot of challenges in, in many of our ways, but he started to approach it from a motivation perspective, started saying that, you know, if, if we give our fundraisers the, the right tools and the right motivation, that they will know that um, this is our goal and we can be unified around this and then we can press forward. And again, this focused on performance, that if only they were motivated correctly and if only they had a clear sense of what we were aiming towards, that we would be able to reach these goals. And this comes a lot from sort of new age pop psychology that says that, you know, we need to be kind of mentally focused upon our goals in order to reach them. And so many times you'll have consultants that say, well, let's think bigger, let's think grander. And because our goals are so high, we will come up with the solutions to do that. And unfortunately, that doesn't actually work. In reality, it's not motivation that's lacking. More often than not, it's where to put the correct motivation and the correct resource allocation rather than randomly assigning those resources and the, that motivation to a wide variety of tasks and a wide variety of activities. So this concept of power of positive thinking doesn't actually constitute strategy. It might help you set a goal, but it doesn't tell you why to pursue strategy X versus strategy Y. And that's the second foundation, which is selectivity. 
Selectivity is the core of strategy. Someone once said that strategy is scarcity's child. If we could do everything, if we didn't have limited resources, whether it's money or time or human capital, well, then we could do it all and we wouldn't have to worry about strategy. We would just move things forward. And that's what that first problem, that kind of motivation approach does, is it focuses on the abundance of resources that don't actually exist. There are only 24 hours in a day and we don't want to work 24 hours, right? So we need to focus on that scarcity to say within this framework of how much money we can spend and our existing staff resources, our existing programs, what are the things that we should prioritize? Many times the strategic plan looks like a dog's dinner. My dog will eat anything that is out, uh, including things that are unhealthy for him. And in reality, that's what our nonprofits do all the time. They see something that needs doing and they do that thing as opposed to being laser focused on the strategy that is most effective at reaching the goal and eschewing all other strategies, all other tactics, all other resource allocations to be laser focused. So the key is to identify in a strategy, what is the thing that we need to do first? This is sort of the chain link approach to strategy. So what link needs to be forged in order for the strength of the next link to be held together? And once those links pull together, we're able to form a, a, a strong chain. And in order to do that, we need to know where there is leverage. What is the thing that we have that is different, a competitive advantage or a, or a, a strategic value, uh, some service that we offer, human resources that are valuable that we can leverage to create scalable results? So if we put more gasoline on this fire, it will explode and create more of whatever our organization does or whatever it whatever we want to achieve. But we can't spread that gasoline over multiple fires or we will have less of an impact, right? So we want to focus on dumping all of the gasoline, all of our human capital, all of our, our financial resources into one uh, fire to make sure that it explodes. Now, of course, I get that um, the the question or the concern would be, isn't this putting all of our eggs in one basket? And to a certain extent, yes, we are putting more eggs in certain baskets because when it comes to strategy, diversification actually results in failure. In fact, it results in potentially cascade failure because we be become a jack of all trades and a master of none. Our organizations are designed for a specific purpose. And within that specific purpose, whether it's the arts or homelessness or uh uh, education for children, we want to see what can result in cascading success. What can we do that moves the needle further, faster? And so by spreading out our attention, we're actually undermining the, the value that we can have in that sector or in that space. A great book to read is uh, a book called Essentialism by Greg McEwen. And he talks about how not just in our professional lives, but even in our personal lives, spreading out our attention too thin results in unsatisfaction, but actually also in a sense of lack of accomplishment, that we never actually get momentum moving in any particular direction. And unfortunately, a lot of people feel that in nonprofits. Staff feel like we just keep doing the same thing. It's lather, rinse, repeat every year. We send out the same appeals. We do the same programs. And we're just sort of incrementally moving the needle. If we want to see change just in our organization, we need to identify the dispositive 
factor, the thing that we do first that is the most meaningful to create change in the sector. And by putting all of our attention or most of our attention in that space, we can create long-term sustainable or meaningful change. I like to think of this as focusing on the weapons of mass destruction versus the weapons of mass distraction. So by spreading out our attention and focusing on far too many things, we get distracted and there's mass distraction. When in reality, if we can drop one nuclear bomb and destroy this problem, we're able to focus our attention and eliminate it forever. That's sort of a coarse or, uh, or, or um, unfortunate example, but hopefully the visual gives you a sense of what we're looking at. The last uh, foundation is that strategy starts with cynic. And by that, I mean strategy starts with why. So at the core of strategy is answering the question, why is a problem occurring? Or why is success occurring? So rather than seeing the symptom uh, of, a, of uh, a cause, we need to identify what is the root cause. If we fear that there is a problem in our organization, then we need to identify what the cause of that problem is and how to resolve that cause. So at the end of the day, as, as I said before, measuring performance leads to bad strategy because performance is a symptom of an underlying cause. Why is that performance bad? Or why is certain performance good? Do we really know? And how can we diagnose that? So the number one question you need to ask with your data with regard to strategy is, What's actually happening here? And sometimes it requires confirmation. It might require more data. But we're focused on why is this thing happening? Why do we? Why are we seeing beneficiaries fall back into the cycle of poverty? Why are we seeing kids who continue to suffer? Why are we seeing hunger persist? And what what is the thing that we can latch onto that if we if we move this lever, if we pushed on this, that we could solve? that problem. So at its core, we need to discover what works, what doesn't, and why. The third issue that I want to talk about as we close here today is the features of good strategy. So put simply, strategy is something worth doing that we have the capacity to do. So if we have a strategy that we are uh, that's not worth doing, or we don't have the capability of doing it, it's not really a strategy or it's not a meaningful strategy. So we need to identify the thing that is worth doing. And for every nonprofit, there's some element of what your organization does that is worth doing. And there are probably, honestly, things that are not worth doing. I think you, you can look at any nonprofit and see there's something here that we really shouldn't be doing that's not really worthwhile. It takes up a lot of time and a lot of resources and doesn't have a lot of benefit. But we like it and we don't want to lose it. But it's affecting the capacity that we have to serve more beneficiaries in a meaningful way. And then do we have the staffing resources and the financial resources to implement on that worthwhile strategy? Or do we need to direct it or redirect it from elsewhere and or gather those resources? Do we need to raise more money in order to be able to do X? In order to do that, we need to think through the lens of others. This is the key factor uh, or feature of, of good strategy is that most of the time, in fact, all of the time, because of our own cognitive biases, we have to think about our own thinking, the problems that we have with our own thinking. And there are numerous, at least 200 
cognitive biases that we all have in terms of how we approach problems. So in unpacking our own thinking, we are trying to think through the lens of our beneficiaries or our donors and identifying what are the things that they're struggling with? What are the problems that they're facing? And how can we rethink what we do to serve those entities in a more meaningful way that would drive significant change? And in some circles, especially in financial circles, it's called seeking alpha or pursuing alpha. So we put in X amount of effort and the distance between that and how much return we get is considered alpha. So what is the amount of work that we can do that's meaningful, worthwhile work that will result in the most benefit? Uh, and the the way in which um, a, a strategic uh, professor of strategy, uh, formerly at UCLA, uh, UCLA Dr. Richard Runnelt, uh describes this is that at its core, strategy is coherent action backed by argument. That's what he calls the kernel. Coherent action backed by argument. And this is how I'd like to close today, by going through those the three concepts behind Dr. Rummelt's theory. The first is a diagnosis of the problem. We've talked a little bit about this, but remember that diagnosing the problem is a judgment on facts. So is, if we have too much data or too much irrelevant data or unclear data, then our judgment about those facts are going to be erroneous. When we have a the right data, and that data is clean, and uh, we feel like it is significant enough for us to take action on, we are forming a hypothesis. We're making a guess. We don't know for sure, but we are saying, if we do X, we believe that Y will happen. And so many times this is based upon metaphor or some sort of prior example. We've seen something happen before, and we are applying that logic that hypothesis to this circumstance. And then we are constantly testing against that hypothesis to see, were we right? Were we wrong? Does this, does moving this lever change the output or the outcome? Now, challenges that we have, the problems that we have might be internal. They might be a result of internal processes or communications or morale that are affecting our ability to produce more program or more beneficial programs for our beneficiaries is the reason we're not serving more people in an effective way because our systems are not designed correctly, in which case we have to create that hypothesis and deploy a solution for that internal challenge. It may also be that our problem is external. It may be a capacity or capability of providing the service that's most needed out there. So is the the external environment saying, this is really what's needed to resolve this problem, but you don't have the financial resources as a nonprofit to do that. So you need to get those financial resources and reconfigure your staffing and allocation in order to serve that purpose. The second factor is a guiding policy for dealing with that challenge. So we've diagnosed the problem, we formed the hypothesis, and next we are developing a guiding principle or policy for dealing with that. So if our, our problem is uncertainty and all of the challenges that are happening right now in 2020 and 2021, what is our guiding policy to leverage that uncertainty in a way that advances what our overall organizational outcomes look like? So this is directional. It's not dictating. It's the guide rails on a road. It is the, the, uh, the kind of outside uh, limits 
on where we can go. We're not trying to define the content. We're trying to define the constraints upon actions. So as a nonprofit, we have values and vision and mission, and we can get into why that is sort of relevant and sort of not relevant. But our goal here is to rule out what we won't do, to stay focused on this road, and this is the road that we will take. A lot of consultants in this space will say, here's our current state, here's our future state, and we need to figure out linearly how to get from this place to that place. In reality, what honestly happens, and you see this in your own nonprofit, is that there are a handful of future states. There are a handful of different possibilities out there, and there are myriad different possible solutions that could, or steps that can be taken, and strategies that can be taken. So what we need to focus on is not a straight line or even a jagged line, but rather a, a cone of strategy where our current state is here and we have these guidelines that define where we won't go, where we won't act, we won't do things outside of this scope. And within that scope, it could lead to a certain finite set of possible outcomes. So this cone of strategy helps us as we are adapting to ongoing data and ongoing information that helps us to see more clearly what the future possible states are. It doesn't mean we end up with multiple future states, but we might end up closer to the top, closer to the bottom, but we're, all of those options are acceptable to us. And each of the strategies that we undertake within that guiding policy concept are based upon our advantages whether it's people or process or the the you know the other elements of our organization that we can use as a force multiplier that we can put in one unit and receive out three units so we have a person who's really good at at some skill and if we use that to our advantage it can result in bigger better change the the challenge in how data and strategy typically gets distributed to nonprofits is that there, it doesn't exclude anything. It says everything that you're doing is fine. In reality, there are millions and millions, infinite numbers of possible levers that you can flip on. And the key is to decrease that complexity, to say we need to limit the number of levers that we're focused on and flip one or two or three, that money Python took, right? The, but never really more than three, right? We want to identify what are the three levers that we're going to test and figure out. Uh, and the fewer actually decreases complexity and helps hone our strategy towards uh, uh, the limited possible outcomes that we're looking for. So a, a really good example of that is a, a friend of mine owns a grocery store. And in the midst of COVID, she's trying to figure out what what do I focus on for my strategy? I have, it's near a college campus. We have college kids who are coming in. And then we also have busy professionals that are coming in. So which customer should I cater to? Because they, they create opposite strategies, right? Uh, if you're looking for a college student, the college student's problem is we might need to be open late and uh, they're not really concerned necessarily about time, but they need cheap food and, uh, or, or food that's, that's really quick and easy to make. Whereas a busy professional, they're, um, they're interested in time, right? So late hours is not useful. We just need to be open uh, during their commute and maybe have more checkout lanes available. So we have staffing, more, uh, more significant staffing during the, that five o'clock commute time. But maybe we have to-go meals that are ready so that they can take that home as opposed to inexpensive food that's kind of grab and go, 
um, you know, snacks or whatever. And we wouldn't, and as, as I said, we wouldn't be open late. So based upon those two customer avatars, if she's focused on busy professionals, her decisions will be very different. And that was her choice. She decided we're not going to stay out stay open late. We're going to limit our hours, but we're going to invest more resources into a speedier checkout, frictionless uh, activity, and food that they can take home and cook at home. So that's a really good example of how the guiding policy kind of allocates resources and helps us define where we should go. The last is a set of coherent actions that follow the guiding policy. What I mean by coherent is that these activities need to be coordinated and connected. In every nonprofit, you have uncoordinated, unconnected activities. You see this in siloed activities, things that don't that everybody's sort of pursuing their own goals, whether it's over, over here with this separate set of programs or with marketing and fundraising. And because it's, it's incoherent, it results in a diversification of goals and strategies. And so again, we are pushing on multiple different level levers, trying to make everything work, and nothing is really meaningfully successful. Some limited things are successful, but uh, and maybe we see some shiny piece of, of uh, accomplishment, but not in any kind of overall sense. So what the strategy helps us do is to say, all of our actions, all of our resources are focused upon the one, two, three levers that we are focused on for this period of time until some contravening evidence tells us to move one of the, to remove one of these levers to say, we're not going to test that anymore. We're, we don't like that or, uh, and replace it with something else or we're just going to focus on the one that's working. But the more disconnected, the more incoherent your, your activities are, the more it undermines the overarching strategy for your organization. So many of us have heard of Carol Dweck and her land landmark research on a fixed versus a growth mindset. This is important. Dweck has been uh, rightly praised for these two concepts. A fixed mindset is one that in our brains we say we can't improve. You know, this is who I am, uh, and I'm never going to change. Whereas a growth mindset, and we try to instill this in kids in particular, uh, is one where we can learn, we can develop, and this is an important mindset for many people. But what if Dweck's students um, actually realize that there's a third mindset out there, and it's called a strategic mindset? And what nonprofits need to do is not just develop a learning mentality, but developing this strategic problem-solving mentality where they identify, how do I unpack this problem? How do I see what the problem really is, the problem behind the problem that I see, and what are the first steps that I can take to addressing that problem and reconfiguring our asset allocation, our resources, towards res resolving that problem? in a way that has sort of a broad, long-term strategy. If we put these pieces together over a longer piece, period of time, it can result in significant change for our beneficiaries or for our community. So at the end of the day, the question that I want to leave you with is, does your data help you focus? Does your data help you focus, or does it create the scatterbrained approach? Does it create a lack of focus and a lack of attention and move you in a lot of different directions. Because at the end of the day, strategy is about focus. It's about saying, this is the right activity for us to do. And if we put our energy into this activity, it can result in meaningful impact for our beneficiaries and for our community. 
So with that, I want to leave you with the, that thought and hope that as you think about your data process and, and collection and, uh, and your approaches, that you continue to think through what are the things that I need in order to make a good decision and ultimately do the next right thing. Thank you. <laughs>